0: Heritage Park Baptist Church. We make apprentices to Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit heritagepark.org. It's going to be a good week. You can have a seat. Sorry, I didn't, I should have said that. Uh, My name is Trent. I have the privilege of being the pastor here. Thanks for joining us today. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in the book of Acts, chapter 17. If you don't... Uh-oh, was that my fault? Okay. If you don't have a Bible, uh, no big deal. Uh, we have some on the sides of the booth back there. Feel free to go grab one. If you need to grab one, um, you can uh, either borrow it or take it with you as you have need. That's perfectly fine with us. Um, Acts chapter 17. Uh, I think on the Bibles back there, it's page 936. Uh, and if you're a user of the Bible app, you can open that right now and find our live event and you can track along with the scriptures and the sermon notes and other important info there. Acts chapter, uh, Acts chapter 17, we're going to pick up here in just a second. Anybody ever had that moment where you're with somebody that you know, and they see somebody that you know, or excuse me, they see somebody that they know, um, and you maybe have heard about them or something like that. And so the, the moment goes like this, like, hey man, how's it going? And big bear hug, right? And then it's your turn to say hello, and you're like, "Do I hug or head?" Like you got of awkward. Uh, th- this is that moment um, in this particular passage because uh, some of you, depending upon where we come from and where the backgrounds are, uh, uh, some of you will hear this today, and you'll be like, "Yeah, hey, how's it going? That's good." It's- And then some of you are like, I'm not sure what to do here. Do we just awkward man hug it with two slaps on the back? Or do we just like, I don't know what we do. Um, And so today, I just want to put everybody at ease and say, uh, no matter how you encounter this, what we're after today and what I think the text presents to us today is a picture of God uh, that will certainly lead us to communion as we celebrate here in just a minute. But it's a picture of God that may be familiar to some. And for others, you're like, huh. Uh, That's a nice handshake. I need to think about this some more, okay? That's where we are. In the book of Acts, um, Paul... The kind of the primary player in this particular section of Acts. Um, Paul is in Athens. Uh, he has walked around Athens and he has seen all sorts of religious relics and idols and altars, places of worship, all of this kind of stuff. And it's kind of birthed something in him. And he begins to talk about who Jesus is and what he has done. And all the dudes in Athens are like, we need to hear more about this. And so Paul steps into the marketplace. He doesn't retreat from that opportunity. He's not backing up from that. He's saying, I'm stepping right into this because I want to be uh, the right kind of witness. And so he steps into that and that's where we're picking up in verse 22. So Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus, again this kind of collective uh, uh, place where uh, a lot of the civic stuff happened and social stuff happened, standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with, the, with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you pro- proclaim, excuse me, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So that was kind of where we stopped last week. Paul has walked around. He's got something kind of in him. And he says, listen, you guys, you got all of these places of worship, all of these idols, all of these altars, and you got this one over here that says, to the unknown God, let me tell you about this God. That's where we are, okay? And three things this morning, I think the text will present to us, three um, uh, kind of portraits or pictures, uh, even attributes of God that are that good for us and for us to hold on to. Verse 24 is where we're going to start. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man Every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So let's start here because Paul starts here. And I think as Paul as the, the story unfolds, we're going to see Paul's um, asking, excuse me, he's answering the questions that the Athenians are asking, the people from Athens, but also the questions that, that humanity is asking. And the tone here matters. So let's hear. Paul's not angry. He's not going to beat anybody with a big religious stick or anything. He's just trying to paint a picture of who God is. Where does he start? He starts with a word that I'm guessing you probably didn't use this week, but it's a good word. He starts with transcendence. God is transcendent. And what does that mean? He's this hes this uh, uh, big kind of ethereal, not really, as much as um, he captures something. And we'll talk more about that here in just a second. But he describes in this way, this transcendence, um, uh, Paul uses, uh, He doesn't use the word, but Paul uses this concept, and he describes it these three ways. First of all, that God is uncontainable. Look back at verse 24. God who made the world, everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by man. You can't contain him. There is not a structure. There is not a system that can contain God. In fact, the more you try to put him in a structure, the more he throws curveballs to go... You can't stop me here. Like, you, you, the more you try to contain him in some way, the more he'll say, no, 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 this is not the way that is. Why? Because you're not relating to a person or a structure. Excuse me, you're not relating to a system or a structure. You're relating to a person. And so, did anybody grow up in church here? Anybody? And, and willing to admit it? I mean, that's the next question. I did. <clears throat> church I grew up in, First Baptist, had the pews, right? Pews. Um, had the red shag carpet that nobody had dusted, and you couldn't really vacuum because it was, you know, all pews. And so... Me and my friend Bradley and occasionally my friend Chuck, we on Sunday morning when everybody else was doing things that they should be doing, we would play whack-a-mole. Does anybody know what I'm talking about here? Like we would start over here and we would dip down underneath the pews, crawl up a few things and then pop up and see where the other person was. These are not things that I'm proud of. I'm telling you these are things that are. So we we'd do that and inevitably at some point we, as we're looking around for the other, we would catch the eye of mom from the choir loft. You remember like Superman had the heat vision, laser beam things. It was like that. It was just burned right into your soul. The other thing that Bradley and I did, again, not proud of, I'm just stating things that are, is on the third floor, while everybody else on Wednesday night, we did Wednesday night church, while everybody else on Wednesday night was being responsible, good people, Bradley and I would sneak up to the third floor because we were convinced that it was haunted and we would run around all sorts of places on the third floor, having all sorts of fun and playing all sorts of games. And inevitably some sweet old lady or some mean old deacon or somebody else, hopefully it wasn't our parents would catch us and would say, don't you run in here because if you grew up around church, you know what's coming. Don't you run in here because this is God's house. Now, sarcasm Trent had some responses to in that. I do not recommend any of those, okay? Uh, But Some of us grew up with a mentality, hey, that building, this building right here, um, at this particular locale and this particular address is God's house. The problem is, Acts 17 is pretty clear, Paul's pretty clear, the God who made the heavens and the earth, he's the Lord of all of it. He does not dwell in houses made by human hands. Does anybody really think that this building can contain the God of the universe? I mean, it's nice, but not like that. He's uncontainable. You, you can't stick him in a structure and you can't stick him in a system. That's not how it works. Uh, the, the second way he describes him, he, he says at the kind of end um, of verse 25 and then the start of verse 26, uh, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So he's uncontainable. But the second thing he says about God's transcendent nature is that he's the creator he's the creator. He's the one who gives life and breath to everything. And so, uh, you know, th- this comes down for you. If- and there's all sorts of questions. Let me just go ahead and set this out there. All sorts of questions about how it all happened. All the- That's a fun conversation over chips and salsa or coffee or your favorite whatever. What we're talking about here is not how that it happened, but why that it happened. Why did it happen? Because God is the one who created. He was completely happy within himself and out of the effusive uh, uh, overflow of his happiness in himself. He created something to share with it so we've got this creator and 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 some people think well you know i'm kind of here on my no 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 no. you're not no you're not you, you didn't even have a say in you coming into being uncomfortable okay good the the point is this that the, the god is the one who is created and he didn't just create you and me and the stuff that's here that we made this thing out of, but instead, he also not not only created us individually, but he also created uh, societies and cultures. He says, um, he says here in twenty six, he determined uh, allotted periods, so he created the eras, if you will. Um, he created the boundaries of all societies and cultures. He is the one who is the creator. And then, lastly, in the middle, excuse me, at the end. Uh, uh, one more time, at the beginning of verse 25, I lost my place there, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. God is transcendent in that he's uncontainable and that he's the creator of all things, but he, he's transcendent in the sense that he's self-sufficient. So the, so the question goes something like, what, what does he need from us? What's the answer to that? Nothing. I mean, do, do you... What do you think he lacks that I somehow am going to supply? Where do I think that he needs improvement? Hey, God, last nine weeks, like you had an S. On your, you were satisfactory. But now, I mean, this nine weeks, we're really expecting you an E, and I'm going to help you get there. He doesn't need anything. And some people approach this, again, depending upon your background, depending upon your exposure to religion or, or other thoughts. Some people think, oh, God, he, he really wants from me something. He wants my money. Listen, God made the heavens and the earth. Do you really think He needs your money? Oh well, he he wants uh, he wants uh, uh, my acknowledgement, as if somehow I could say something or sense something that would make Him more God. He wants my service. God can. He's the creator of the universe. He doesn't need my little, he loves it when I participate with him, but it's not as if he's waiting on me or my obedience, or any number of other things. What does God need that he doesn't have? And the answer is nothing. He is self-sufficient. And so, here's where it comes down for you and for me, I think. It's an invitation to humility. Why? Because if I stand before this God, this this uncontainable God, the creator God, the self-sufficient God, look at how Paul summarized it, he being Lord of heaven and earth. That's the summary statement right there. The Lord of heaven and earth. If I can stand before this God and see him, not with physical eyes, but with spiritual eyes, if I could stand before him, what would that invite me to? It would invite me to humility. Somebody has said this, and it's been such a powerful picture. I think it's right. Um, Put the picture up, Jack. Anybody know where that is? Grand Canyon, north rim of the Grand Canyon. How many of you have been there? Okay, I haven't, so I'm jealous of all of you. Uh, I'm going at some point, but just not tomorrow. All right, so you, you stand on the precipice of the North Rim of the Grand Canyon, and you look out. So you just walk out there, and this, this vista is before you, and you're standing there, toes on the edge, just examining it all. You know the one thought that does not go through your mind? I am awesome. I mean, hey, look at this, and this is, wow, am I great or what? You don't think that. Because in that kind of existential moment, you actually lose yourself. You you stand there and you're looking. I just was looking at the picture, going, that's the most amazing thing. Like I'm looking at it on my computer and I'm going, that is unbelievable. I'm standing on the edge of it digitally and I'm losing myself. And those who have stood there personally certainly don't think man, am I greater? What? You lose yourself. And yet, and yet, even though you start feeling very small, what? What happens? You also have this sense that your soul, like that portion of you is somehow also enlarged. Like there's something that expands inside of you because you're getting to experience this. That's what transcendence does. When we see this God, this, this uncontainable the creator who is fully self-sufficient and does not need my help or aid or supplement, I stand before that God on the precipice of that and I go, wow, I feel really small, but somehow something in me is expanding. Some people hear about a big God there and they think, oh, well, you know, you must be like master of the universe, you know, light years away, Paul knew that that would be a question, and he answered that. Look at verse 27. This is, if God is transcendent, that's amazing. What we don't want to lose is that he's also near. Verse 27, he he allotted periods of boundaries and so forth, that they should seek God, and perhaps feel their way toward him or grasp and grope their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. So don't miss that. He's near. Some people hear about a transcendent God and they think, man, he has just blown this joint, rocketed out past wherever. He like created the world, spun it up in a motion, said, good luck kids. And then like, light years beyond whatever he's like past pluto at this point if he can hear me it takes like five and a half hours for him to hear me and then five and a half hours back if he's going to say anything back. like it's forever down there like gone by god thanks so much no that's not the god of the bible the god of the bible is fully transcendent and that that not only gives us perspective on ourselves but expands our soul and he's also near that's what he says he's not actually far from each one of us he's near Meaning what? That the, the, this transcendent God, his, the difference that is between me and him does not create distance. There, there's not relational distance because of who he is. Some people believe the lie um, that, that somehow God is disconnected from the world because he's so big. And it expresses itself in a couple of ways. So let's just see if this lands on you. Uh, one uh, uh th- th- this is a lie that God is so big that he doesn't see. Like somehow God is so big, so far removed, so disconnected that he doesn't see what's going on in my life. He doesn't know what happened this week. He doesn't know about that phone call. He doesn't know about that, that email that came in. He doesn't know about the job situation, the conversation, the relational conflict, the whatever. He's so big that he can't see that far into my world. Or, or kind of a corollary goes something like this. Um, not necessarily that God is so far away, but because I'm so far away from God, he can't see me. The choices that I've made has put me elsewhere and he can't see me. I'm telling you, that's a lie. He says he's not far. God is actually not far from each one of us. So don't, don't walk out of here believing that lie because God is not far. The second way that expresses itself Uh, The the second lie that, that kind of rises is not only is God so big that he can't see, but God is so busy that he doesn't care. Like, God's got North Korea to worry about, and the Middle East thing is, you know, hasn't been worked out yet, and, you know, there's some other stuff happening, and laws being passed, and stuff, economy issues, and Brexit, and whatever. Like, God's got a lot on his plate right now. He's going to have to manage all of these things. Or to bring it down personally, hey, listen, you know, God's got all of this stuff happening. He doesn't really care, or doesn't have the bandwidth to care about me. Like, if I were to try to call and get an appointment, they'd be like, great, we'll see you in 2024, kind of thing. That's what they think. Or, or again, the corollary, or I've got so much baggage that there's no way he would actually care about me. I, I, I distinctly remember um, I did a rotation at a hospital um, um, when I was in grad school. Uh, doing some chaplaincy work and um, got into multiple conversations. One of the questions that I liked to ask, I was in this one conversation um, with this lady who just, I said, man, you just, you look like you're heavy today. And uh, she was, she was, she was wearing it on her face and kind of in her posture. Um, and um, one of the questions I like to ask was, hey, so, you know, tell me about your background, tell me about your story. Do you have any religious, you know, kind of part of that faith journey, anything like that. And she just talked a little bit. And I, one of the questions I like to ask, I just say, hey, if I handed you a, uh, a piece of paper and I said draw something that you think God would be what would you draw and she said whatever it would be it would be big bright and splotchy I don't know exactly what that means all I know is that she felt about light years away from God that he's big and bright and splotchy whatever that means so, some of you are, are like, you, God could never see me because he's so big. And he certainly wouldn't care about me. He's so busy. Telling you that's a lie. He says he's not actually far from each one of us. And better than that, look at the beginning of verse 27. He made us, you and me, that we should seek God. We should seek God. See, he designed us to seek him. And this expresses itself well, let's just pause here and say, I mean, a, a God that wants us to seek him is a caring God, a God who sees us and says, hey, come, come with me, come follow me, come be a part of this. He wants us to be in relationship with him. That's what he wants. Not, not a religious exercise, but a relationship with us. He designed us to seek him. It's built into our DNA, this kind of level of desire for the transcendent and to experience that. He, he built that into our DNA so that we would seek him and try to find him. Uh, this shows up oftentimes in the arts. Um, you see people who are more reflective, more contemplative, maybe more artsy. This kind of shows up in the arts—music, poetry, books, whatever. Um, probably the consummate one for most of the people in the room. I'm not going to catch everybody, but for most of the people in the room, a uh, little song by a band. Uh, uh, what's there? Oh yeah, you two. Anybody heard of them before? But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. That's that longing. For transcendence That's that longing for, to experience that. C.S. Lewis, the author, um, wrote the Narnia Chronicles and some other books in his book, Mere Christianity, actually makes an argument for the existence of God um, from this desire. He says this, uh, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food a duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. He goes on. He says, and don't miss this sentence. If I find in myself a desire, I mean, don't miss this. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation, there might be others, but the most probable explanation is what? Is that I was made for another world. God created you and me with this desire and within our DNA to seek him. But we, but we don't. Or our seeking is so awry and so misguided that it actually dishonors him. This is what happened at Athens with all of the idols, all of the altars, all of the places of worship. They did everything but worship the true God. That's why Paul comes along to explain. You and I, we don't necessarily have altars and idols around our houses, although we may. We have um, other things that we may be locked onto, that we give our allegiance to, that we give our affection to. And all of that actually misshapes us even more. Sin has already... Um, uh, uh, mis, uh, uh, kind of misshaping our souls and here we've got uh, uh, you know the more we follow this the more it actually continues to misshape us and so Paul comes along he's like look the desire that you have to seek God I mean it it, it finds a, a, a place it, you're asking the right questions you're just coming up with all the wrong answers He wants us to see God. Here, continuing on here, verse 28, I said it shows up in the arts. In him we live and move and have our being. He's quoting a poet there, and he quotes another poet. As some of your own poets have said, indeed, we are his offspring or his creator, excuse me, his creation. Now, verse 29 uh, leads us, leads us to this. Being then God's offspring or his creation. We ought not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So let's just pause right there. Because the third, he's transcendent, but he's not far off. He's near. And the best part about this is that he is a pursuing God. That's the God that Paul represents to the Athenians. That's the God that we as followers of Jesus represent to the world. Team edge that's, that's the God you get to talk to these kids about this week. A God who's transcendent, who expands their souls, a God who is near to them and cares about what's going on, and a God who's in pursuit of them. Why is that important? Because that is the God that, excuse me, that is the attribute of God that sets him apart from every other deity in the world. See, he says, let's not think, don't think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. this is not Zeus. This is not Athena. This is not any of those gods. And it's not any of the gods that you and I worship either. This is a completely different kind of God. Transcendent, yes. Near, yes. But because of our sin and because we are separated from him, he's in pursuit of us. This is what sets him apart. It's not, he's not like every other god. Three different conversations this week, three completely different contexts, three different conversations said, well, don't we all kind of worship the same God? What's the answer to that? No, we don't. And, 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 I mean, these pagans here in Athens, guess what? They don't worship the same God as Paul was declaring. Um, the the uh, Muslims don't worship the same God that Christians declare. And on and on. Pick your favorite religion. They, they just, they don't worship the same God. And the more honest we are about that, the more it actually honors the people who are there. We, we don't claim not to worship the same God. It's, he's different. This is what sets him apart. God is in pursuit of us. How did he pursue us? Look at verse 20. Excuse me. Verse Verse 30, these times of ignorance, God overlooked, but now he commands that all people everywhere to repent, to rethink their thinking because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. What is he saying? He's saying that this, this pursuing nature of God makes him different. And this is what makes Christianity different from all the other religions. God sent Jesus for us. All the other religions, every other narrative, every other religious narrative goes like this. Here I am at the bottom of the mountain. Zeus or Allah or, again, pick your deity. is at the top of the mountain. And I need to somehow make my way up to the top. I'm going to overcome the trials. I'm going to win the day. I'm going to make it at the top. And finally, maybe there, he will accept me into his paradise. That is every other religious narrative that you can come up with. The narrative of Christianity is we are at the bottom of the mountain, broken and helpless. And God at the top of the mountain looks down and goes, they're broken and helpless. So I will leave the mountain and come down to them. I'm going to send my son. All this stuff we've been singing about, all this stuff that we're going to celebrate, I'm going to come down to them. I am going to rescue them. And he did so in the person and in the work of Jesus. And if you stand before this God, we were made to seek God. And we end up being the ones who are sought. And as we stand before this God, And he opens our eyes to see something pretty amazing happens. Like we can really see the world as it is. I came across a video this week. I just want you to watch these folks who are colorblind put on these glasses and watch what happens. Colors now? Gosh. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> I guess it does work that well. Are you serious? Weird, but... I've been missing out on so much. Oh, oh my gosh! What? Can you see so the what? The what are the colors? What are the colors? Uh, What's the? Now? We're not <laughs> uh, <laughs> can you see them? I don't. I'm, oh my gosh! I guess they work. Orange, red, yellow, green, blue, purple. Oh yeah. So when we stand before this God, realize that this transcendent God who made, who's uncontainable and created everything, who's self-sufficient, but still near. Some of us be like the cute old man. Some of us be like Bubba. Oh my gosh! I've been missing so much. What you see, though, in those videos... Nobody takes their glasses off and is like, hey, thanks so much for the, keep them on. Why? Because they want to continue to see. They don't want to forget. They don't want to, they don't want to let that roll off into some distant memory. They keep those glasses on so they can see. And the, the best way to prevent forgetting is to practice remembering. Jesus has come. He has pursued us. God sent his son, Jesus, to to come and die in our place and for our sins. And then be raised so that we could have life forever. And that's what we come to remember. The best best way to practice, excuse me, the best way to prevent forgetting is to practice remembering. So this is what we're going to come to do is to remember that God, the transcendent God, who's very near to us has pursued us.